You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. singing church. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Some weeks ago we were in 1 Corinthians 8 through 11, if you recall, and uh, I have enjoyed being in this book, and so as I have opportunity, my goal is to kind of piecemeal and finish up the book Um, But this time we're going to look at the first couple of chapters. And the theme that I think Paul is getting after in this opening part of his letter is really something that I have found to be uh, something that the church is missing. And by the church, I mean the American church. Uh, These past couple years, we've uh, seen all kinds of things, haven't we? And the church has seen all kinds of things these past couple of years. And I think, I'm, I'm not sure that the church has passed the test of really showing forth the real focus of what Christian ministry is about, of what we're actually about, of what is most important. And that is the cross. We just sang about the cross, about being redeemed many different times didn't we, in these past few songs. The cross is the center. It's the ground of our hope, the focus of all that we have. We have nothing apart from Christ crucified. And there's so many things that that we as Christians can rightly talk about when we talk about Jesus from the scriptures. We can talk about his birth and celebrate that, which we've done, and that's wonderful. We can talk about and celebrate the fact that the Lord Jesus was obedient for us. He was perfect for us, and he gifted us with his righteousness. We can talk about that. We can talk about the fact that he resurrected, and we'll get to do that in just a few short months when we get back to Easter again. We talk about the resurrection all the time, but especially then. We can talk about the fact that in his present session, the Lord Jesus prays for you, Christians. He intercedes for you on your behalf with the Father. We can talk about that. We can talk about the return of Christ. But none of that, friends, is as significant as the death of Christ. Somebody told me as I was, well, they didn't tell me I was reading it, but I guess they did tell me because I read it. But they said that the cross of Christ is, and, and the very fact of Christ crucified, think about that phrase, Christ crucified. He said, it's like saying burnt ice cream. It doesn't make any sense. How can the king die? How can God be put to death? That's, that's so outlandish to every world religion. You see, every world religion can talk about a God who's powerful and can do this and that and make all kinds of promises, but only the one true God can talk about my son came to die. And there's something so profound about that. I'll tell you, for me, when I think back on my own testimony, the thing that compels me the most about the Lord Jesus is that he died for me. Because I deserved everything that he endured. And he did that for me. There's nothing more compelling about Jesus than the fact that he died for me. And I know, friends, if you are a Christian this morning, I'm sure you agree with me. It's so, Jesus is so beautiful because he would be willing to do that. Yes, he's powerful. Yes, he has so much strength and ability Yes, he is king and Lord, and he in some ways is terrifying in all of his power, but he's so beautiful in that he would die for sinners. Someone said that the gospel, you could say, here's a short way of understanding the gospel. God saves sinners. And that's such wonderful news. For those of us who know ourselves to be sinners, we know who we are. And our God saves sinners, and he did that only through the death of Christ. 
And this text, Paul is talking about and reminding the Corinthian church about the focus of his ministry. We're going to jump in in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, right at verse 17. Paul's finished up talking about some issues in the church in Corinth. We talked about this before when we went through chapters 8 through 11. The church in Corinth was a hot mess. When we think about the early church and those that try to say, we need to get back to living like the early church. If you read about the early church, it was a hot mess just as much as we are. And it needed God's grace and it needed the ministry of the word and prayer just as much as we do. But Paul deals with some of this, the issues that's going on in the church in the opening of his letter. But then at verse 17 is where we'll enter. And I'd encourage you to follow along with me and we'll read down through the end of the chapter. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not come to know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the, strong, the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you and bless you for the fact that we can once again come together as your body. God, we thank you for your word that's true. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and his sacrifice for us. We thank you for his presence with us now through your Holy Spirit. And I ask, Lord, that you would fill me, fill us with your spirit, that we might see and understand your word, that we might behold you face to face in your word, God, and that you would work powerfully in our midst for your sake and for your glory. We love you, Lord. We trust you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Power and wisdom are two things that the world uh, claims to have to offer to us. Power and wisdom. And we see power, uh, or rather attempted power, in all kinds of places, don't we? Politics, certainly. All kinds of people talking about how much power they have and trying to wield it from every side of the aisle. People talk about wisdom. Everybody wants to be right. Know what is right. Do what is right. And there are all kinds of promises about how to do that. And Paul is engaging with these very concepts of power and wisdom. And in the midst of that, he wants to prove a point to us that God's power and wisdom are displayed through the gospel. God's power and wisdom are displayed through the gospel. And in many ways, the gospel does not seem powerful and wise to worldly thinking. To the world, that doesn't seem powerful. What are you talking about? God dying, the Lord Jesus dying, that doesn't seem powerful or even wise to follow such teaching. See, Paul enters into our text 
talking about. There are those different factions within the Corinthian church. And he's entering into that conversation to say that those, some are saying, well, I, I was baptized by Paul or this, that, or the other, trying to claim that as a badge of honor. But Paul says, Christ, verse 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Here he's not demeaning baptism. He's simply saying my task was not to be sent to baptize people. I was not sent to perform baptisms, but to preach the gospel. This is his mission. Paul's mission is to preach the gospel, not to baptize. Note, though, that the baptism would have taken place after the preaching. He infers that in that understanding, as churches were formed and as local elders were preaching the gospel and preaching the word to their people, people would be saved and then they would be baptized. And he said, that's not my test. That's not my calling. That's what local churches are doing. That's not his task. And notice how, though, he says what his task was, to preach the gospel and not to do so with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. And this shows us one of the first contrasts that Paul talks about. All throughout this whole section that we're going to talk about this morning, there's so many contrasts. Paul contrasts the um, preaching the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom, and then he talks about in verse 18, see it there, the word of the cross. And he talks about words of eloquent wisdom and the word of the cross. There's such a contrast there. But it's helpful to us to understand what he means by words of eloquent wisdom. As a family, we've been spending time watching The Andy Griffith Show. And uh, I've never watched it in its entirety, just a little bit here and there. And if you're familiar with The Andy Griffith Show, you know the character Ernest T. Bass, who always throws the rocks through people's windows all the time. And the poor guy is just a bit off. He lives out in the mountains and he talks. He can't understand things. The recent one we watched, Andy was trying to teach him a little bit so he could go and propose to this girl. And he couldn't read really well. He couldn't write really well. And so I thought about, is what Paul's saying, is he saying that we need to preach the gospel like Ernest E. Bass would understand it? Or like Ernest E. Bass would, would preach it? Is that what he's saying? Is Paul saying, well, listen, when I was with you, Corinthians, I, I taught you that it's really good to just be dumb for Jesus. Is that what he's trying to say? I don't think that's what he's trying to say. Paul is actually engaging with something that is true of his day. You see, we live in an entertainment culture. I've just shown my cards, right? I'm talking about a TV show, and many of you know what I'm talking about. We are entertained to the nth degree, and many of us are so entertained that we have to have a device that allows us to be entertained when we're not entertained all the time. So we can watch TV and shows and football games and whatever else on our phone, because heaven forbid we just sit and stare at the wall for a while. So we're so entertained that we have to have um, constant sources of that, right? But also, we've all become armchair critics of entertainment. So when you watch a movie that's kind of corny and not very good acting, you know it. Like, that's terrible acting. That's not very good. I don't want to watch this. Or some TV show, right? So we're, we've become very educated even in our entertainment. So we know what is good entertainment and what is bad entertainment. Well, it was no different in Paul's time. But see, the entertainment was different. The entertainment was they would go and listen to some public speaker and people were, would go to school for this. They would be trained in what was called rhetoric and they would learn how to speak in ways that would entice an audience and persuade them and eventually move them and shape them so that they would walk away like, wow, that guy was an amazing speaker. And they were used to it so much that they would know when a guy wasn't very good at it. So they would listen to a guy speaking and they'd say, well, he, he didn't, you see that, what he did right there? He, he should have taken us to this particular point. He should have made that particular point right there. So it would have really just moved us and then all persuaded us to believe what he's saying, whatever it was. And this is what people did. They went around and listened to public speakers and people would go and get trained in this rhetoric. They would go and then train others in this rhetoric. People would read books about rhetoric. It was so uh, commonplace in this time. And so when Paul comes to Corinth in the Greco-Roman society that Corinth is, 
The people, even the new Christians, are expecting Paul to preach just like all those public speakers do. And they want to hear him use all those wonderful, powerful turns of phrase. They want him to just wow them and impress them with all of the ways that Paul is so studied. And that he can just kind of glide along on these words and take you on this journey with him. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't go and preach in a way that meets with these expectations of eloquent wisdom or rhetoric that they're all used to. And look why he says that he doesn't do that. Because if he did it, look at the end of verse 17, the cross of Christ would be emptied of its power. You see, because public speaking in that day, entertainment maybe now in ours, or let's just say worldly expectations, those are things that we've all come up with. And we're a bunch of fallen sinners, And so if God then says, I'm going to try to wow the world and impress them by meeting their expectations, it's emptying the cross of Christ of its power. Because the cross of Christ is otherworldly. It's not meant to come down and stoop down to our expectations and wow us and impress us. Of course it's amazing. But it's so supernatural in the literal sense of the word, supernatural means above natural. It's, it's otherworldly. What do you mean Christ crucified? What do you mean God dying on a cross? It's not meant to, Paul says, enter down. I'm not going to come down to that level. Because to stoop down to speak with words of eloquent wisdom would be just that. It would be stooping down for God. He simply wants the gospel proclaimed. And that word preach there is best understood as proclaimed. You see, there are two kinds of people in Paul's day. There were those that were these public speakers, these people trained in rhetoric who wowed and impressed crowds. And see, when they got crowds together, they could choose their audience. And they could maybe sell tickets or whatever they did to bring people together so that they could have the right audience. It's like if you've ever been (laughs) bamboozled into going to a timeshare thing, right? And at the end of it, somehow you end up now you've owned some part of some place in Florida, right? That's kind of what some of these scenarios could be like. They get a crowd together and they're all like, yeah, everything he's saying is great. And they leave and they believe whatever he says. There are those kinds of people. There are these public speakers trained in rhetoric. But there's also what's called the herald. The herald. The person that would go and just tell news, Maybe you've seen old movies where you have the town crier, hear ye, hear ye, the kid, right, sitting along the street or whatever, shouting out the news. And the herald's job was simply to go and tell the message. He didn't interpret it. He didn't try to add anything to it, improve upon it. Your job, herald, is to go and say this. That's all your job is. And Paul, when he says, preach the gospel, that word is the same word often used by heralds, to proclaim. You see, preaching, friends, is not about inspiration and wowing you and impressing you. Preaching, friends, is about proclamation. Here is God's word. This is the message. And you are called to respond to it. I am not called to impress you with it. I am not called to improve upon it. I am not called to add to it. I am called to give it to you. This is God's word. And that's what Paul says. If I don't preach the gospel to you this way, I would empty the cross of Christ of its power. I would diminish myself down to just mere human understandings of wowing and impressing with funny stories and goofy uh, antics. And that cheapens the power of the gospel. And so Paul says, that's not what I was called to do. I was called to preach the gospel. And just so you know, it was not with words of eloquent wisdom. That's not my calling. Verse 18, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Many call this verse Paul's sort of thesis statement of this whole section. Because notice what he says there. He could have preached the gospel with words of eloquent wisdom, but instead he preaches the word of the cross. 
He's not trying to use fancy words. He's not trying to use impressive language. He's not trying to wow the audience, but he's talking about the word of the cross. Think about that. He's talking about the word of Christ dying. The cross is not something that is amazing to them at this time. That's where people go to die. It's a horrendous death. It doesn't sell well to the world. Wow, that's so powerful and prestigious. No, Paul's call is to preach the word of the cross. And look how, here's another contrast. It's folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This response to the word of the cross. There's a difference there. See it? Those who are perishing think it's foolishness, it's folly. Those who are being saved, he says, us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Of course, he's writing to the Corinthian church. He's writing to believers. He's talking about those who are being saved, just like many of you are as well. Perishing, one of the most well-known verses of the Bible, right? John three sixteen. For God sent, God so loved the world, he sent his only son, so that any who believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Perishing is not just about dying. It's about eternal death. It's about judgment. It's about going to hell. God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him would not be judged as they so deserve, as you and I deserve because of our sin. Perishing is not just about you're going to die someday. Perishing is about you're going to hell. And there are folks who are currently perishing. There may be even some in this room today. And this message, even to you today, friend, might be foolish. This is ridiculous. What are these people talking about? What are they singing about? Those of us who have come to understand this as true, those of us who have come to understand that Christ died for us, that God so loved us that he sent his only son to die for us so that when we trusted in him, we would not perish but have everlasting life. And we have it now. Those of us who have come to understand that, once you know the word of the cross is the power of God, you'd have to reflect on how could someone think that the word of the cross is foolish? They'd have to be blind. You're right. They are blind. Remember Amazing Grace? I once was blind, but now I see. How do you make someone blind see? Well, just open your eyes. Only Jesus can say that. The blind don't regain their sight by just opening up their eyes. But Jesus, when he says, open your eyes, then the blind see. And for those of us, Christians, who know the word of the cross is the power of God, there was a day when our eyes were opened, our ears were unstopped, and we heard and we knew, this is true, I, I want this, this is real, this is for me, I, I believe this. We know it to be the power of God, and I hope that is true for you today. You see, what Paul says here is not something that's hopeless to us right now. You don't have to, friend, stay in a state of heading towards perishing. That doesn't have to be where you're going. That doesn't have to be the end of the story for you. It's God's grace even that once again he would remind you of this truth. And my task is simply to tell you it. That the Lord Jesus died for sinners like you and I. And that if you repent of your sin and trust in him, you will be saved. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so you don't have to stay in that place of perishing. You can know that the word of the cross is the power of God. So Paul establishes his point by referencing the Old Testament. Look what he says, verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Paul is quoting here from Isaiah chapter 29, verse 14. You can jot that down and look at the context later, but I'll just give you the general gist of the context there. King Hezekiah, you remember him, his counselors were trying to tell him how to avoid the Assyrian threat that was coming. 
But God would soon show that whatever reason or whatever wisdom or whatever great counsel that his counselors would come and give him would not compete with God's wisdom, would not compete with God's power. And that's why God said through the prophet Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And using that very idea, Paul picks up on that same theme to say this is what God has done in the gospel. All of the world's best ideas about wisdom and power, God has come with the word of the cross and he says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discerning of the, the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. And then look what he does. Paul asks these questions, rhetorical questions, verse 20. Very similar to how Isaiah talks about questions. And I, I want you to look with me real quick. Back at Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. Because God, through the prophet Isaiah, asks some very similar kinds of questions. Or maybe if you've read the book of Job recently, you remember the end of the book? When God begins asking all kinds of questions of Job, where were you? Right? Same kind of questions that God is asking through the prophet Isaiah here. And pay attention, church, you're going to see a song in these verses that we often sing here. Look at Isaiah 40, 12 through 14. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And whom made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and show him the way of understanding? He goes on. Catch the song there, Behold Our God. And we often sing here, great song. But these questions that God is leveling against his people, right? He's asking the same kinds of things that Paul asks. And it's almost as if Paul's been reading Isaiah. Inspired by the Spirit to write in what he's writing to the Corinthians. Back in our text, look at what he asks. Chapter 1, Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians, verse 20. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe, or you might say teacher of the law? Where is the debater, you might say philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? In other words, has not God done what he said he would do in Isaiah 29, verse 14, with the gospel? So world, and, and this is something Christians we need to remember. We read this kind of stuff and we go, yeah, the world and all their wisdom, boy, they don't understand. Friends, you are in the world. And so in all your wisdom, God will destroy our wisdom. God will thwart our dis great discernment and our great power and our great understanding and reason. He's done that because the gospel confounds us. Uh, the prophet Ezekiel will say that when we come to understand what God will do in redeeming us, it will close our mouths. We won't be able to say anything. It will astound us. And in all the ways in which we can think about how wise we are or how reasonable we are or how powerful we might be, God asks, where is the one who is wise? Where is the teacher, the great scribe? Where is the great debater of this age, the great philosopher? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Verse 21, for since, this is, this is such a verse, Verse 21, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Think about it another way. It was by God's own wisdom that the world in its wisdom did not come to know God through that wisdom. Let me say that again. It was by God's own wisdom that the world in its wisdom did not come to know God through our wisdom. In other words, you didn't reason your way to come to know God. You didn't just think really hard one day and then figure it all out and go, Jesus, gospel, I get it now. No. In our best efforts, in our best thinking, in our best wisdom and power, where, friends, has your best thinking got you? Where has all your good plans and all your good thinking 
and all your schemes and planning, where has it got you? And this is, this is a display, friends, of God's own wisdom. That we would not come to know him through our own wisdom. Instead, look what it says, the second part of the verse, it pleased God. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Now, Paul is not saying that preaching is foolishness, but he is saying that to the world, preaching is foolishness. Because why? The world of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And so he's entering into a bit of jest here. He's saying, I know that there are those who think that this is ridiculous. But it pleases God through this ridiculousness to save those who believe. It's exactly how God planned to do it. Because otherwise, and we'll soon find as he lands at the end of this section, otherwise, if you and I made it to God through our own wisdom and power, then we are the ones that should be getting the applause and the clap. We should be singing about how great we are. But that's not the case, right? I don't want to go to a church like that that sings about how great we are. I don't deserve any songs. I don't deserve to be lauded and applauded. No, it's God. Through this message, as it's proclaimed, God saves those who believe. And so Paul's message, his mission, was to go and preach the gospel. But the method that Paul used, as I said at the beginning, Paul's method was not about meeting the world's expectations. You see, Jews sought for signs. You might talk about power in this way. Greeks sought wisdom. But God redefines what power and wisdom are. As Isaiah 29, 14 prophesied. Everything that you think is going to be what is good and valuable and, and prized and, and so on, as human beings in this world, God is not trying to meet those expectations. He's going to exceed those expectations and redefine them. So that we truly understand what power is and what wisdom really is. You see, worldly expectations of power and wisdom are just that. And as I said, God did not stoop down to those levels to meet those expectations. He exceeded and redefined them. And this ultimately is all about boasting. Because God is the only one that can be boasted in for doing such a thing. He's the only one in all existence that deserves to be boasted in, as Paul will land on talking about in verse 31. In the midst of Paul's world world there, you see in verse 22, in the midst of his own world, different people from different backgrounds had different expectations of how such a message, the word of the cross, would be validated. Jews wanted to see signs. Give me proof. Show me that Jesus is the Messiah. Prove it to me. Show me a sign. Greeks wanted to see wisdom. Okay, Gentiles, they want to see, prove it to me through the ability of all of this to meet the expectations of our wisdom tradition. Then I'll believe it. But friends, we're no different. Your background, your upbringing, your experiences, you have all kinds of predetermined conditions that you require for God to meet in order for you to really believe it. And not just God, but just anything. And that tells about how different we all are. You have all kinds of things that needs to meet those certain criteria. Some of you are more skeptical than others. Some of you would believe literally anything. And we're all different in that way, right? But we have all kinds of conditions that are kind of baked into us through our experiences and so on. But here's the thing. If... The way God worked was, okay, Nick, these are all the expectations you have of me. And in order for me to get you to come to understand who I am and know me and love me and trust me, I'm going to meet all of those expectations. Well, who's God in that picture? I've just created all of the conditions that God has to meet. Right? If that's how God worked, then he wouldn't be God. Because it would be us setting the standard. God, you need to meet my standard. If you don't meet the standard, I don't, I don't, I, I'll find something else. 
And the reality is, friends, that's, that's the truth. If we expect God to come and meet all of our conditions and all of our standards, then we are God in that understanding, not him. The reality is, our conditions are wrong. Our expectations are off. Because we're sinners. And our hearts are wicked. Our minds are darkened. And our best thinking and our best understanding and our best plans, all we can come up with is something that should be condemned before God. But God comes graciously and redefines our conditions and says, this is actually what you need to be expecting and what you need to be wanting. Think about all the times Jesus has asked a question and he never answers it because he always says, well, you should have asked me this question. He doesn't answer the question sometimes. Read the Gospels and see how often he doesn't ask, answer rather, what people ask. And instead says, basically, this is what you should have asked. Because he's trying to show us, we don't even know what we should want to know. And so, as Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, what does Paul say? Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. There it is again. We proclaim Christ crucified. That's what Paul does. Paul doesn't come saying, all right, guys, all the Jews here are going to demand some signs. So does anybody know how to do that? Okay, remember the Greeks. Uh, anybody read their Cicero recently? So I can quote some Cicero to these Greeks so they are impressed with what I'm saying. Because I, I really want them. Nope, that's not what Paul does. Paul comes and proclaims, Jesus Christ died for sinners like you. Trust in him. That's what Paul does. And I love Paul for that. And Paul doesn't do that because Paul's a great guy. Paul does that because he was commanded to do that. And here's the thing. Paul's willing to make the focus of his ministry, look, look at the end of verse 23. He's willing to preach Christ crucified, even though it's going to be a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Paul's willing to make the focus of his ministry something that's going to make all kinds of people trip over themselves. That word stumbling block or words literally means where is where, uh, the word we get scandal from. It's scandalous. Scandalizes them. He's willing for his focus of his ministry to be something that makes everybody trip over it. He's willing to make the focus of his ministry something that everybody says, that's foolish. That's ridiculous. Paul's willing to do that. Not because he's a great guy, but because he was called to do it. Because when he does that, look, verse 24. When he preaches Christ crucified to those who are called, and there are those who are called among the Jews, and there are those who are called among the Greeks. Because Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. Those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, where we're going to find power and wisdom is in the message of the gospel, the word of the cross, preaching Christ crucified, the gospel. That's the only place we're going to find it. Not through trying to uh, prove the message through all kinds of signs, not through trying to wow people with wisdom. You see, there's such a, uh, a, a lust that the church so often has again and again and again that we, we have to be relevant we have to be able to meet people where they're at. So how can we, maybe if instead of preaching, maybe everybody can just look at their phones and then we'll just meet people there on their phones rather than actually having them come to something old-timey and old-fashioned like church. Or maybe let's try to think of some way to make them laugh and then we'll sneak in the gospel so that then they'll really believe in Jesus. Or let's try to think of some way to entertain them really well. That way then we'll just sprinkle in the gospel so that then they'll come to understand and believe. And the reality is, friends, the world is always going to be better at being the world than the church. Anytime that the church tries to just, you know, let's have a sermon series about the walking dead so that everybody watches the walking dead will come and we'll slip in some message about the resurrection. That's so dumb because everybody that watches the walking dead thinks that's dumb. Just preach the gospel. 
I'm preaching to the choir, but sometimes the choir needs a message. The reality is, as we try to think about, there's all kinds of ways that we're tempted to try to meet people where they're at. God's plan for doing that is the proclamation of the gospel. Because the gospel is offensive. The gospel tells us that there's something wrong with us. But the gospel also tells us that God is the only one who has the answer to that problem. And Paul is making a point that it's not just the message that matters, but the method as to how the message is proclaimed. Because when you begin to change the method, you will change the message. When you begin to change the way that the message is proclaimed, you change the message. It always happens. When you cheapen it by trying to just bait and switch people, you've cheapened the message. Because Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And the way that Christ is taken hold of, friends, is through the proclamation of the gospel. We need to be encountered with that. Of course it's jarring. Of course it, 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 it kind of startles people. Of course it just kind of throws us right into a blender. But that's exactly how God wants it to be. He wants us to be confronted with truth. Of course it, it's shocking And we think about, well, I need to ease my way into this before I can really bring this up with so-and-so or whatever else. Did God do that with you, friends? Did God just kind of tiptoe around? I don't want to upset you, Nick. I know this is really going to throw you off when I tell you that you're a sinner and that you're lost and that you have no hope apart from me. No, he came to me and said, Nick, you are lost. And I have the only thing that is going to save you. And I'm sure that's true for many of you. It probably hit you square between the eyes one day. This is God's grace to us that he would bring to us the gospel in this way. We think it's in our kind of, I don't know if it's us millennials that do this. I don't know if it's American culture. We just want to be really sensitive and, you know, we, we talk about cancel culture and we blame them Whoever them are, they are, <laughs> can't even use the right grammar when I talk about it. Um, we, we talk about that, but friends, we do the exact same things. We talk about how if you don't say exactly what I like, then I hate you. It's exactly what everybody else does. So we're just as guilty. But God comes in with a message that is startling. That the Lord Jesus would die for rebels and ungodly people like me. That's startling. But that's exactly what we need. He wants to jar us out of our slumber. And so Paul's method of proclaiming the gospel was just as important as his message. Look at what he says in verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. If God had any foolishness, it would be wiser than men's best wisdom. If God had any weakness, it would be stronger than men's best strength. And so Paul's saying, God is perfectly secure and comfortable with how he goes about doing what he's doing. This is all God's work. This is God's business. And so Paul's message, his mission, is to preach the gospel. The method of how he's going to do that is going to be not according to worldly expectations, but to how God himself has called him to do it, simply through proclamation. And lastly, this last section here, the word of the cross, Christ crucified, the gospel, is actually God's display of power and wisdom. The word of the cross, Christ crucified, is actually God's display of power and wisdom. This is why Paul focused on proclaiming Christ crucified. In this proclamation is where God issues the call to all kinds of sinners, Jews and Greeks alike. And we come to find out that Jesus is actually wisdom from God. That is, all that we receive in him through salvation. That is real wisdom, God's wisdom. So let's look at this. Consider your calling, verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. He literally means look at your calling. Look. 
Think about it. Think about where you came from. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Paul uses three terms here, three descriptive terms that was commonplace in his time to talk about somebody who was of a really high class. You were wise, you were powerful, and you were of noble birth. And if you had all three of those, boy, you were really something in Paul's day. And he's saying, and he's not trying to demean the Corinthians, he's saying, but most of you weren't this. So your worldly standing is not what got you in with Christ. And actually, if those that would think that Paul's message is foolishness, those that would uh, disagree with what Paul had said or even the way in which he preached the message, if they applied the same test to themselves as they are to Paul's gospel and his presentation of it, in other words, Paul, your message doesn't meet our expectations. The way that you preach it doesn't meet our expectations. If they applied those same worldly expectations to themselves, they wouldn't even meet the test. Because he's saying, Corinthians, you're not even wise and you're not even powerful or of noble birth. So the things that you might say that my message has to meet or the way in which I preach it has to meet, you don't even meet those expectations. So why are you holding my message and my proclamation of it to the same standard? He says, not many, right? There are some who are the haves and haves nots in Corinth. We talked about that when we talked about chapter 11. But the haves, if you will, in Corinth really did not amount to much according to worldly standards. He says, think back. Think back to where you came from. That's not how you got in with God. Instead, verse 27, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose, verse 28, what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Three times, Paul talks about God chose, God chose, God chose. And it seems that God chose the things that the world is not impressed by. He chose what is foolish. Nobody's impressed by foolishness. If you are, you have other things to work through. Nobody's impressed by weakness, especially not in our day. Nobody's impressed by the the things that are low and despised in the world or the things that are not. But God chose each of these unlikely things to bring about unlikely blessings and grace to those. Isn't that true for you, friends? Those of you who have trusted in Christ, you're the most unlikely person. I am the most unlikely person to receive the most unlikely grace from the Lord Jesus. And that's exactly how God works. You see, there are those throughout history who have discredited, tried to discredit Christianity to say that really Christianity is just for a bunch of poor fools. Those that pack churches are not the high intelligent people of society. But the reality is we know that God has chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chose what is weak in the world, to shame the strong. The thing that might be keeping you, friend, from Christ is your own pride. Because you think you are just so smart and so strong. You've got this whole life thing just licked. You've got it figured out. Whatever this guy up here is talking about, that's nice. I don't even know why I'm here this morning, but I can go home and eat pancakes. And I don't really need what this guy is selling. I'm not selling anything. But I'm also telling you something that is true. And whether you like it or not, it's true. And eventually, friends, when we come to understand that we're not as wise as we thought, that we're not as strong as we thought, that we're not as something as we thought, it's exactly where God needs to bring us. Why? Verse 29. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Friends, I promise you, there will be no one standing before the throne saying, (laughs) it's about time that I got here. I earned this. And I'm glad, God, that you finally see it. And no, that's not going to happen. There's no one who's going to be standing before God that says, "I'm, I'm glad, God, that you saw all the potential in me because, boy, do I really got something to be on your team. I'm glad you saw it. No, no one. 
There will not be a bit of boasting in the presence of God. The only boasting that's going to happen around the throne, friends, is what a wonderful Savior we have. What a mighty King we have. We're going to be boasting in Him, lifting Him up, so that He's literally enthroned in His own praises. Because He's the only one that's worthy of that kind of boasting. And of course God wants to bring you to a place where you understand that. Because that is the best thing for you. That you come to understand that you're not wise enough, strong enough, powerful enough. That's the point. You need God in order to know God. Because of him, he says, verse 30, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of the Father, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of God, dear Christian friends, you are in Christ Jesus. From a spiritual perspective, your life is hidden with Christ in God. You're so secure, Christian, as to be dwelling in Christ at the right hand of the Father. In the position of the eternal Son of God, because of the grace and mercy of the Heavenly Father, friend, you are brought into the very family of God. You've entered into the heavenly courts through the Lord Jesus. Where he is, there you are with him. There's a wonderful old hymn called, See the Conqueror, written by Christopher Wordsworth, 1862. The last verse, listen to this. Thou hast raised our human nature in the clouds to God's right hand. There we sit in heavenly places. There with thee in glory stand. Jesus reigns, adored by angels. Man with God is on the throne. Mighty Lord, in thine ascension, we by faith, Behold our own. Did you hear that? Thou hast raised our human nature in the clouds to God's right hand. We have been raised in the Lord Jesus, in the person of Christ, to God's right hand. There we sit, Christians. That's how secure you are in Christ. No one can take you out of that. There with we sit in heavenly places. There with thee in glory stand. This Jesus, he says, because of him you are in Christ Jesus. This Jesus, who became to us, verse 30, wisdom from God. You see, that's exactly what we needed. We needed God's wisdom. We needed God's wisdom so that we might understand and come to know him. Look back at verse 21. In the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. We needed that wisdom of God. And where do we get it? Jesus. He became to us wisdom from God. And in that package of all that that means, we get these three wonderful words at the end of verse 30. Righteousness, sanctification, redemption. And they're shorthand for talking about our salvation. In Christ, we get righteousness. Joel talked about this as we sang this morning. You are, you are accepted, Christian, not by your own righteousness. You are accepted, Christian, by Christ's righteousness. He took your sin upon himself and he gave you his righteousness. So that when the Father sees you, he sees the Lord Jesus. You can't be any more accepted in the Father's eyes than by the righteousness of Christ. And so when we talk about uh, the security of our own righteousness, our righteousness is in heaven, John Bunyan would say, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress. Our righteousness is in heaven. It's at the right hand of the Father. It's so secure, it can't change. The way, the ground by which we are accepted by the Father is Jesus Christ himself. And so yes, we are called to live righteously. We are enabled by the Spirit to live righteously. But even when we fall, the foundation that we come back to is Christ's own righteousness. The Roman Catholics would teach that when we fall, we better get some righteousness back so we're back in a state of grace so that we can be accepted. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that the ground of our acceptance with the Father is the Lord Jesus and his righteousness alone. So that even when we fall, we are still falling down on the righteousness of Christ. And that that is miraculous. That is God's grace to us. But that's not all. Wait, there's more, as the commercials say. There's sanctification. We talked about this on Sunday nights, what sanctification is. 
Simply, it is being made holy. It's being set apart for God's mission and his purposes for our lives. And our, his mission and purpose for our lives is that we would be like Christ. And he enables us to do that. And without Jesus, we have no sanctification. He became to us wisdom from God. And in that package is righteousness and sanctification. So that we can now be set apart as his followers to do the very will of God. So that we would obey him with our lives. That we would grow in Christ's likeness. And that we would desire more and more to please him. And finally, redemption. We sang all about redemption this morning. Redemption is a word that means you were a slave. You were in bondage to something. And someone came and purchased you out of that slavery. And that was God himself. He was our ransom, the Lord Jesus. You were enslaved. I was enslaved to sin. And nothing could free us. Remember Charles Wesley's hymn, And Can It Be? Talks about being in the dungeon, in darkness. His chains fell off. He didn't take his chains off. God took his chains off. Because he was redeemed. The light broke forth into the dungeon. His chains fell off. He rose and walked and followed Christ. That's God's work in redeeming us. We are redeemed. Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb as we sang. Christ became all of this for us as he became wisdom from God. And in God's perfect wisdom, his wisdom was all set on saving us. And God didn't have to do that. God doesn't owe us salvation. But he did it because it pleased him to do that. So that, he finishes verse 31, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. He's quoting from Jeremiah 9. You can look at verses 23 and 24 later, but that's where he's he's quoting from about boasting. Paul arrives at his end point in this section. Remember, Paul's message is the word of the cross. And his method of preaching the word of the cross is not to meet worldly expectations, but to do according to what God has called him to do, which is proclaim Christ crucified. And when he proclaims Christ crucified, that word of the cross is actually a display of God's power and wisdom. And when that happens, we boast in God, the one who deserves to be boasted in. So that let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Friends, what a wonderful Savior we have. What a great God we have. What a mighty King we have. What a wise Lord. What a powerful King. What a perfect God the Lord Yahweh is. And so the focus of Christian ministry ought to be the gospel. We're wrong to think that the gospel is just what gets us on the team. And now we just get busy trying to not sin. The gospel is what, Christian, you continue to need. You need to continue to feed on the gospel. Christ crucified is everything. Think about all the things that Paul could have said. He's going to talk about, when we talk about next week in uh, chapter 2, all the things that he could have said. I knew nothing among you except Christ crucified. He could have said all kinds of things. That he spent his time focusing his ministry on. But he said, I focus on Christ crucified. That means that continually, 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 we need to feed on the gospel. And here's a few practical considerations of how we need to do that. First, in our private devotion, we need to make the gospel central. So as you read your Bible, all of you have uh, probably made all kinds of resolutions that maybe you've already broken half of them. But maybe, I hope, one of them I don't care what you think about resolutions, whatever you call them, promises, plans, uh, whatever. I hope part of what you're trying to do this year is trying to be in the word more. Whatever plan you've picked, whatever buddy you've decided to do it with, your spouse, your family, whatever. Whatever you're doing as you're spending time in the word, focus on the gospel. And so wherever you're reading in the scriptures, think about what does this have to do with the gospel? What does this have to do with the person of Jesus Christ? What does this text have to do with the work of Jesus Christ? Because that's the whole point of the Bible. The Bible is not about you and I. It's not a roadmap. It's not a guidebook for our life. It's about Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. So as you are reading the scriptures, think about, Lord, help me to understand, what does this have to do with Christ? His work, his person, his character, his eventual death, his resurrection, whatever. 
Think about that as you're reading. And then as you go to prayer, which you should always, as you spend time in the word, allow the word to lead you into prayer. And as you do that, think about and pray and preach the gospel to yourself, Christians. Do you know all the things that go through our minds? We think the craziest things sometimes, don't we? We tell ourselves all kinds of lies because we believe all kinds of lies. And I'm not talking about weird, positive thinking stuff. I'm talking about reality of who we are, identity in Christ. Preach the gospel to yourselves, friends. Remind yourself of the cross. Remind yourself that you've been purchased by the God of the universe. Remind yourself that your creator is also your judge, and that's good news because he has died for you. Remind yourself of these things in your own private devotion. Secondly, in our families. Fathers, parents, you need to make the gospel central to your homes. Spend your time talking about the gospel with your spouse, with your kids, with your extended family. Grandparents, you can do this as well. Make this be the centerpiece of what you talk about at your home. Not about moralism, but about the gospel. Because no, your kids never do what they're supposed to do. Neither did you, neither did I. That's the point. We're all sinners and we need the gospel. We need God's grace. So focus on the gospel in your families. Talk about the gospel. Think through it. Buy books that help you understand the gospel. Read the Bible together and talk about the gospel as family. And you need to lead in this way, fathers, husbands. In our, among our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, our extended families, how hard is it? We always are praying, maybe you're doing this, I hope you're doing this, praying for entry points to get to talk about the gospel with friends. God, give me some kind of in that I can just bring it up. Pray that God would give you more boldness to just say it. Just talk about Jesus. There was a guy that I used to do uh, homeless ministry with. His name was Doug. He was an insurance guy. And Doug uncannily could just be the guy who would just talk about Jesus all the time. He could be the guy that you'd be talking to every night that we go down to the shelter. He'd say, well, I just shared Christ with so-and-so and so-and-so. And that guy over there, see, I just talked to him about Christ. And he could do it. And it was so natural. And I just thought, I want to be like Doug. And Doug was kind of a different dude. Doug, if you're watching, I love you. I'm so glad for Doug because Doug gave me such an encouraging understanding of just, just say it. Just talk about Jesus. What are you afraid of? If it's really this important, Pastor David talked about this today in Focus Hour. If Satan is so dead set against pushing against the gospel, then shouldn't we think about the gospel being more important than it is? And so just say it. Yeah, you might lose a friendship. It might get weird at the dinner table. Who cares? Talk about the gospel. Talk about Christ crucified. This is the wisdom of God. Our social media profiles. I get tired of talking about social media. I'm sorry if you get tired of me talking about it. But friends, you understand that social media is real life. You understand that how you are on social media is how you are. It's not some kind of side compartment where you just dump off all the dumb thoughts that come to your head or my head. But that's who you are. And so as you aggregate all the things that you normally talk about, do you ever talk about the gospel? Would you be guilty if we put all of your posts up here on the screen? A former youth pastor I served with did that one night to his students. He put all of their recent uh, little posts up on the screen. They talked about it that night. What if we did that this morning? Would, it, would you be talking about the gospel ever? Would you be guilty of that? Make that be. If you want to be in those spaces and connecting with people, whatever it is you're doing, fantastic. Talk about the gospel. Because if that's who you really are, then be who you really are online in the metaverse, or whatever in the world it's being called these days. In our church, the main diet that should be coming from this place is the gospel. And you need to pray, friends, for us, that anybody that stands here would continue to focus on that. Please pray for us in that. Pray for the ministries of our church, our children's ministries, our student ministries, the various other ministries that we have of our church. Pray that the gospel would always be central. 
Those that we partner with, our missionaries, those that we pray for, we want to make the gospel be the focus of their ministries. We want to pray that for them. We want to encourage that in them. There are all kinds of people that talk about doing great things for people. That's wonderful, but that's not gospel ministry. We want to focus on the gospel as a church because it is, it's the wisdom of God. If you can find anything better than that, then let's talk about doing that. But I don't think you can. So let's focus on that. We need that truth to continue to think about the things that God wants us to focus on. Next week, we're going to talk about the reason why the gospel is so powerful. And it has to do with the Holy Spirit. It's something that is so denigrated in our day. And we need to revisit it and see what Paul has to say to us. That's what we'll talk about next week. I hope that you come back for that. That you're all well enough to do that. I'm going to be done now. And I'm going to pray. And I ask that you would pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I pray that you would take what has been said. And that you would set aside anything that is not of you. I pray that your spirit would bring to bear on our hearts and our minds the truth of your word. I pray that you would help us to refocus as we come into this new year, thinking about the gospel. It is your very wisdom and power displayed to us that you, Lord Jesus, would be crucified for sinners like us. That is the ground of our hope. We praise you and thank you for that. Help us to live with that at the center of who we are. Thank you for loving us. We love you, Lord. Dismiss us with your blessing. We ask in Jesus' name.